Well, hello again. We're going to uh, continue our time looking at some wisdom literature uh, in the Old Testament, especially last week we looked at Psalm 112 and we talked about uh, the righteous life and what does that look like in the life of believers as we emulate uh, the righteousness of God as found throughout the Word of God. And this morning we're going to take a look at another wisdom psalm known as Psalm 127, but this one has a little wrinkle to it. Not only is Psalm 127 a wisdom psalm, and a wisdom psalm, as you might remember from last week, usually has all kinds of very powerful black and white sort of statements. It doesn't deal with the gray areas of life. Talks about the righteous and the wicked. Talks about the blessed kind of life, and that will be the focus of this, of this particular little psalm. And we'll see the wonder of God's provision as he guards and builds our homes and the wonderful provision of children if God allows. And, and that is the wisdom in which he has chosen to build planet earth. And so this morning, he wants to give us skill from on high how to conduct our homes. But this particular little psalm is also uh, known as uh, a song of ascents. Uh, in the Hebrew, a songs of the goings up. Not easy to say, but it's important to recognize how the Bible sort of divides itself and really what's going on in the book of Psalms. If you'll think through the book of Psalms, it's really the divine poetry of the Old Testament, many of them written for musical accompaniment, and it's divided into five major sections. And the book sort of progresses. You learn some basic principles about God early in the Psalter, and then as it progresses, the opportunity to respond is given. In Psalm 113 through 118, right before here, it's known as the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of praise. Hallelujah is the Hebrew word to praise the Lord, halal to praise. And so those seven or eight Psalms are all designed about praising the Lord. And then Psalm 119, that very powerful reminder of the preciousness of the word of God and all of its power. And then we come into the Songs of Ascents. And if you want to go in your Bible, starting in Psalm 120, and those particular Psalms will go from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Fifteen particular songs that were intended to be sung by the pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem. You see, each year the Jewish male and his family were required to go to Jerusalem to participate in the three main festivals that were required. And these were the songs that were sung on this huge camp out as you made your way, perhaps from the north, and you made your way to Jerusalem. Wherever you lived in Israel, you went up to Jerusalem. It sits on a very high plateau, 2,600 feet above sea level. And whether you came from the north, you still went up to Jerusalem. And these were the songs that were sung by the pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem, or as they ascended to Jerusalem for the annual feast. The phrase, if, you, if you'll notice in, the, in your song, uh, each of those psalms, you'll see the little phrase in a particular kind of font, a song of ascents. It's, it starts each one of these 15. That's actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text. That's inspired scripture. The, uh, the editor of your Bible might have put a, a title over that or above that, but that little phrase, a song of ascents, or in Psalms 127's case, a psalm of ascents of Solomon, is actually part of what was originally written. And it was designed that you might be reminded to express your confidence and your hope in the Lord as you made your way to worship. It was travel inspiration. David wrote at least four of these we know, ten are anonymous, and the one that we're going to look at today, Psalm 127, was written by Solomon. 
Uh, As you made your way to Jerusalem, these psalms reminded you of the importance of that city. Yerushalayim in Hebrew, the city of peace. This is the, the apple of God's eye. This is the locale of where God has done all of his serious business. This is the place in which uh, Abram sacrificed Isaac and David purchased the threshing floor where Solomon built the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians and then rebuilt by Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, added on by Herod, and then it was destroyed after the time of Christ by the Romans. This was the location of where God met people. The city of peace is mentioned throughout the Psalms of Ascent. In Psalm 122, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Other themes that you'll see in these songs are uh, that of peace or shalom, this, this idea of being complete with the Lord. Not just a lack of war, but enjoying a sense of wholeness with God and each other. May peace be upon Israel elsewhere in these songs of ascent. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, also, we see that God's protection is invited in these particular songs. Unless the Lord watches over the city, we'll see in our song today. The watchmen stand guard in vain. And lastly, as we'll talk about a lot today, the blessing of children, as you see in Psalm 128, verse 3, as well as what we'll take a look at today. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Remember, this is a wisdom psalm. It deals with large areas of life, macro levels of life. It doesn't deal with some of the exceptions that do happen in life. And certainly in a room of this size with this many people, there are going to be heartbreaks when it comes to children. There's going to be the heartbreak of not being able to have children when you wish, the heartbreak of the loss of a child, the heartbreak of of children that have, have gone astray perhaps. But wisdom literature reminds us of how things generally work. It also reminds us of those that are going through those trials, that we are to come alongside them, for we too are being tested as they go through that trial and how we might encourage them along the way. But God generally has chosen to build his planet through a husband and a wife, having a family and raising them up into the admonition and fear of the Lord. And so in wisdom literature genre, that's the way it unfolds. And so we'll present it from that perspective, but keeping in mind certainly the exceptions that the scripture does allow. If you were that Jewish male and your family was being raised and it was time to go up to Jerusalem, you would get ready first of all for the Passover that occurred in the spring. And that feast of Passover that accompanied with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits was to remind you, especially if you were a farmer, that God had provided for you. You would take the first of the, of the barley crop, for, perhaps, that had come up and, and it, you had planted it, you'd seen it now come up and you had cut off part of that crop and you would take it up to Jerusalem and offer that to the Lord as a sacrifice saying, thank you for the crop that is surely to follow. That's why it's called first fruits. And that early in the spring festival was so important uh, in the Jewish calendar. Then you would go back home for 50 days, literally seven sevens plus one, and then you would come back to Jerusalem. The next crop had come in and you would give glory to the Lord at Pentecost or Sabaoth as you would give recognition of the next crop that had come in. And for now you would be prepared to go back for the long hot summer when the crops would grow to their full maturation. And you would see what Jesus would say, the fields are wide into harvest as the summer unfolded. So finally the harvest would come. Now, if you've been a farmer or if you know farming, harvest is all where it's at. That's where you make your money 
or make your hay if you'll allow. I spent, I spent a couple of weeks on a, a, a barley farm and a wheat farm in Alberta, Canada. Uh, winter comes a little earlier there and they're getting ready in late August, September, even in early October, they're still gathering the crops and the, the, the large combines that go 24-7, they fill them up as, as they're on the fly. Uh, the wives bring out in trucks and hand through a long pole the dinner uh, for the husband who's up in the combine getting the crop off the field. For you've got to get it to the granary because that's where you make your money. And when that happens and that harvest is in, there's a great time of celebration. And the Hebrew calendar allowed for that as well. It was known as the Feast of Trumpets. And you would come back to Jerusalem and you would give thanks to the Lord for the provision of the produce that had been yours that year. And you gave back to him that which was his already. And you would enjoy the forgiveness of sin on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, And you would um, commemorate Israel's time in the wilderness by living in tents or booths as they recall their time after their Egyptian exodus and when they lived in the wilderness prior to coming into the land. All of this intended to teach the family about the provision of God. As you sang these songs on the way to Jerusalem, you, your wife, your kids, your aunt and uncles, a caravan of folks would go up together much like a summer vacation in the back of a station wagon in which you may have had songs that you sang. And that time that was approaching when you were going to come to the destination that you had set, whether it was Grandma's house or the Grand Canyon, whether it was Yankee Stadium or or just some place that you wanted to go camping, there's that moment where you get close and you you see your destination that you get excited. And that's the imagery. That's the, 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 the cultural background that's going on with this particular psalm. As you made your way to Jerusalem, you would see this wonderful sight. Because Jerusalem, as you ascended it, sits up like a pearl being lifted up. It is lofty, and it is intended to remind you of a high place that is close to God. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. For in that economy, that day and age, that's where God lived. That's where his presence was. It was known as the Shekinah or the presence. But physically, he lived inside the temple. As you saw in the wilderness, the the pillar and the cloud would invoke the presence of God and remind us that God was there. And then it came and filled the temple. And that's where he lived. Hoovering over the Ark of the Covenant were two angels that met your sin and God met you there as well. And that's why it was important to go where he physically was. If you were to make your way up to Jerusalem, you would be overwhelmed at the economy of scale, the size of things. It was intended to make you feel small. Everything was big. That's the place where the priests washed their hands. Fellas, that's the biggest barbecue pit that's ever been made. It's a place where you would make your sacrifice known unto the Lord. And the the, the smoke of the sacrifice would fill the nostrils of God metaphorically and It was big and grand, and it was to remind you that he is big and grand. Ever been to maybe uh, churches up east or in the north, maybe uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, or I remember going to Princeton one day, and their chapel is just overwhelming. You go in, and the spire goes up nine or ten stories, and over here in the wall is like somebody is buried there, and it says 1642, and you're just reminded that people have come before you And people are going to come after you, and it sort of properly, humbly puts you in a space and 
and state of what we're supposed to be all the time. It reminds us of the grandeur of God. We see the, uh, the, the sacrifices being lifted up to the Lord and the Levitical priest giving their sacrifices to the Lord. These Psalms of Ascent are also known as the gradual Psalms because uh, there, are, there was believed that there were 15 steps that would lead up into the inner gate and, and, the, and the priest would stand upon each of the steps and sing each a sense of uh, uh, song, Psalm 120, then Psalm 121, Psalm 122, as he made his way up, reminding you that we're now in Jerusalem and approaching God in all his glory. And the wonder of making sacrifice to him and being reminded by the Levitical choir who might lead us in various songs that we've studied this summer and be reminded of the greatness of God and uh, the solemn assemblies of which would occur inside the temple and the festivals and all their decor would be available to you as the pilgrim. If you go today, it's the same mindset. That temple has been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, but the plaza still remains that outline of what Jesus saw, of what Solomon built. All that's left of uh, the temple that Jesus knew are some stones that were not turned over that are right here in this area. It's, it's known as the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. A little closer look here, you see a side for the men to worship the Lord and women on this side of that divide. But that is all that's left. And that symbol that you see here of uh, really the Middle East is nothing more than a game of, of king of the hill. Who's on top? Who is in charge? And you see the Dome of the Rock sitting on top of the most precious spot in Judaism, the most precious place that these psalms were talking about. And that is the tension that lives in the Middle East today as people come even today and want to be places where God was. And that idea of, of seeing that. The, 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 you see that it's it, it, quite a large valley here. This is the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives here as you look over. And the dimension is hard to see, but you can see how strong of a drop-off that is. That's believed to be the corner, by the way, in which the, the devil took Jesus in Matthew 4. And took, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, jump off. God will catch you, trying to tempt us into the sin of presumption. So the geography and the landscape of of the Old Testament is found throughout. Knowing where places are and knowing what people saw is crucial to our understanding of the Word of God and how these particular songs work. As we focus now on Psalm 127, we see that Solomon is the author, and he's a songwriter deluxe, by the way. 1 Kings 4 tells us that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs, obviously the book of Proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs, uh, not all of which were in Scripture, obviously. Uh, He wrote Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. He also wrote the Song of Solomon, or probably better known as the Song of Songs. It's believed that of the 1,005 songs that he wrote, this is the song of all the songs that he wrote, the best of them all as recorded uh, in the Word of God. As we see uh, elsewhere, that Solomon sort of drops in some hints that he wrote Psalm 127. He uses some terms that were similar to when he built the temple. His dad, David, was not allowed to build the temple, for David was a man of war. But David allowed his son, or taught his son well. And in 1 Kings 6 through 8, you see Solomon dedicate the temple, and he uses beautiful language about the Lord. Solomon was taught well, by the way. He did not end his life well, but he was taught well. And the insight that he has into the Lord as he uses some of the same language in Psalm 127 that he uses when he constructed the temple. He also uses his nickname. 
One of the names for Solomon elsewhere in the Old Testament is Jedidiah, beloved of Yahweh or beloved of Yah. And that is the word uh, beloved here in this particular little psalm as well. And lastly, he will uh, leave behind the, the idea that things without God are vain. He built his whole argument around of Ecclesiastes the same way. And we're going to see that very easy principle to grasp, that unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor do so in vain. It is a pointless, futile effort unless the Lord is involved in participating. And so that's really what this little psalm is going to be about. It's only five verses. It was intended to be easily remembered and sung as you made your way up to Jerusalem. So come, let's go up to Jerusalem and sing Psalm 127 together. I'll just recite it and and, and prevent you from hearing my singing it. But we'll see how this song uh, might uh, minister to us this morning and be reminded of these basic little principles that these pilgrims would have known. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless God guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. It's a pretty simple song uh, to unfold. It's just two main sections. The first two verses uh, deal with the idea that it is meaningless to try to build a family without the divine intervention of the Lord. Without his participation, without his leading He's going to let us know you're on a futile effort. And lastly, as the, as the family builds from, from the individual and then he and his wife and then his children, if God will allow, uh, we see that the Lord's provision of children ensures the happy security of the family. We're going to take a look at children through a slightly different lens this morning and, and see the wonderful benefit that they are to the parents and to the uh, ongoing well-being of the family. As we see the psalm unfolds, we see in the first verse that the two main themes emerge, and I've tried to capture them in, in, by color coding. One of them, of course, is the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. Those are the two main schools of thought that we deal with every day, right? A, a, a God-centered life or a life centered around me that the Lord will eventually tell me is vain. It won't work. You can't get there from here. You've put your ladder against the wrong wall. If you're a hunter, that dog won't hunt. There's all sorts of ways of communicating this type of image, but that's the basic principle of this little psalm. The Lord's way or the wrong way. And thus, it's wisdom literature. It's very black and white. It's very plain. It doesn't deal with exceptions. It just reminds us of basic principles of living, that unless the Lord is the primary participant in the building of your house, you're doing a pointless thing, a futile and empty pursuit. The key phrase, obviously, is unless the Lord. It's a wonderful verse to memorize. It's a wonderful verse to to ponder as you go through your day. Now, one of the questions that often comes up, and, and Chris touched upon it a bit, is, well, don't I really do things? Don't I really go to work and don't I really try? 
Isn't there some kind of effort that's commingled between me and God? And, and in fact, the answer is yes. Uh, I think Paul captures it best in 1 Corinthians. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. Paul had, really did have dirt under his fingernails. He really was planting. Apollos, metaphorically, was really carrying water. But like any good farmer who goes and, and, and tills his field and plants the seed, he or she is always reminded of that, of that wonder of how does that crop grow? I can put that seed in the ground. I can cover it up. I can put fertilizer on it. I can pull weeds and water it, but I can't make it grow. And that's the sort of divine human dance that's going on in the scripture. The amazing thing is that God is so smart, he's so strong, he's so all-knowing that he can incorporate our real efforts into his plan and still pull off what he's trying to pull off from the beginning. Our participation is real. But this psalm reminds us that if we're in a dance with the Lord, we need to let him lead. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor will do it in vain. If we're attempting to build our house without the Lord, he's going to state that that is, in fact, a vain pursuit, an empty, futile way of living life. It's a false purpose. That's the reason it's futile. That's the reason it's purposeless. If you are dead set on going to Dallas from here and you take off going south, You will not get to Dallas. I guess you could go all the way around the world, but let's let go for a moment. You will not go north if you head south. Now, you may be driving well. You may be trying to stay under the speed limit and and talking to your spouse and your kids and, and doing good things according to the law. But you have endeavored upon a false purpose. It was a good idea to go north to Dallas, but you are going about it the wrong way. That's the essence of this little song, as it reminds us. Now, notice also, remember we're looking at poetry here, and these words have literal and metaphoric meanings. Notice a little nuance of how these words unfold. Notice that the Lord, he builds. I love that image of building. It's, it's positive. There's construction going on. You can see the thing rise before you in your mind's eye. But over here, those that do it in vain, how are they being described? They're laboring. It's hard. The Lord is building while those that attempt to do it without the Lord are laboring. The Lord guards the city easily. He's protecting. It's an easy thing for him to do. But notice those that attempt to do it in vain have to keep awake in order to do so. That effort that, that that they must try to supply because they've not tapped into that effort that the Lord promises to supply. We see in this psalm as it unfolds that it is vain to do three things. And, and vanity is going to govern these three little infinitives that we're going to see here. It is vain to rise up early. It is vain to retire late. It is vain to eat the bread of painful labors. He's saying it's futile. You don't need to do those things. And if you're doing them, maybe those things are being done because the Lord is not building your house. He's not guarding your city. The, the early and late imagery is interesting. It, it's this attempt to artificially lengthen the day. If I can just do more, if I just get up a little earlier, if I just stay up a little late, I can then get it done. Now, we're going to see as this psalm unfolds that, that our participation is real. But in so doing that kind of life of vanity, what he's going to tell us, it's painful. 
See, hard work is a result of the fall. We're supposed to work. We were supposed to work before the fall. Hard work then becomes the result of the fall. But to attempt to artificially extend the day and accomplish things without the Lord is ultimately a futile purpose. And it brings about a sorrowful anxiety. To bring about a day uh, that is, yes, long and industrious, and we should participate fully and work hard for wisdom literature elsewhere tells us to do that. But to do it with an attitude that does not include the Lord will produce a sorrow, will produce a fear and an anxiousness of which the Lord never intended for us. You see, our ultimate purpose in life is to bring glory to God. And if you set about on a, a different purpose... You set about on a different tact, you ultimately will pursue vanity. And you will recognize that things aren't happening as you wish they were. So in in our natural minds, we'll say, well, then I'll just work harder. I'll get up earlier. I'll work later. And what we discover is that brings about bread that was sorrowfully earned. Uh, If it is done through anxiety and, and stress in a life of fear and worry without the Lord, that's what he means by it being futile and thus ultimately dishonoring of the Lord. The family is, is meaningless without the divine intervention of the Lord. And notice how he kind of balances things out at the end of verse 2. For he gives. And the image that's sort of at play here in this psalm is this strong kind of effort going on by all the people who are living their lives vainly. They're, they're laboring. They're trying to stay awake at night. And over here you see that the Lord is just giving. He's so powerful. He's so gracious. Unlike the vain life, we see what the life that includes the Lord looks like. If the Lord is included, he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. Now notice the little phrase, even in his, is in italics in your Bible. It's not done so to emphasize it. It's done so because it's actually not part of the original text. And so it's a somewhat difficult verse to translate. And there are typically two understandings of what exactly is God giving? What does he give? Is he, does he give while we're asleep? And the answer of certainly to that could be yes, that he might provide while we're actually sleeping. He's guarding and watching while we sleep. But there's also this idea that sleep is actually the object of what he gives us. Physical rest. In, in, in juxtaposition to that laboring and anxious kind of life that's led by those that are pursuing life vainly, we see this idea of sleep, physical rest, and also the metaphor that sleep provides throughout the Scripture. This rest that we can have in His provision, that while we're sleeping and enjoying that gift from God, He is providing and we can enjoy the fact and be reminded every day that God is the one who has taken the lead. Two great times in biblical history, God made sure that we knew as readers that he was in charge. When he made Eve for Adam, he caused Adam to go to sleep. When he cut the covenant with Israel, he put Abram to sleep. So there would be no doubt that it was God who was the one who had provided this. And while we slept, God provided, and we can enjoy that kind of provision. Now, the second part of the psalm turns now from the, from the building of the house of just the, the husband and wife to now the expansion of the house through the blessing of children and the provision that those children 
provide as they they bring about a happy security for the family. Let's take a look at a couple of the words that are used here to describe the kids. He says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. it's, It's poetry. It's meant to be in balance. Children are a gift. They are a reward. But unusually, at least the New American Standard Bible, translates words differently than it normally does here. The word translated gift here is normally translated inheritance. And it allows us to put on a slightly different lens as we take a look at what children are to the parents and to the family at large. Think about it if you might inherit something. There are two things that typically will come with an inheritance. A blessing... Uh, maybe $10,000 was in Aunt Sally's will for you. And $10,000, uh, the lawyer says, has now been put into your bank account. That's a great blessing. Maybe Aunt Sally said, I want you to use that, that money for uh, the blessing of your family or for your child's college education or for missionaries or whatever. Maybe there's an entrustment also that as the one who receives the inheritance is also obligated uh, to enjoy and to make sure occurs. And so children are a, a gift from God, an inheritance from God. He wills them to us so that we might be blessed by them, yes, and that also that we might have the recognition of that entrustment that we have for their well-being and their proper uh, being brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That blessing and trust is extended to the parents. Elsewhere, in the same passage, we see that they're also a reward. But the term elsewhere is used as a wage, as something that's due after you've worked. Uh, 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 your pay. And I want you to think of, of, of pay in this way. As you, uh, you work and a paycheck comes your way, what does that money allow you to do? Think of children as your pay some kind of provision for you in the same way that your paycheck allows you to purchase, to be protected, to enjoy. Children are God's way of paying parents, if you will, by their uh, inclusion and involvement in the family. That's why you'll see in an agrarian society, uh, when, when a daughter was married off, she was often paid for. For she was considered quite valuable, and the, the, the father enjoyed the payment that that child had now brought. Children bring blessing, trust, and a sense of well-being financially and from a security perspective to the family at large. And this is very important and especially true in a society that's built on families and tribes like you see in the Old Testament. The whole thing was about building up the family and making sure that the tribe was intact, making sure that the grandparents were cared for, that everyone saw themselves as a member of a collective larger unit. And it was something greater than themselves so they could be participating in something greater than themselves and properly find their place in life. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You see, the Hebrews saw their children as the greatest blessing and enrichment God could give their lives. And that's what I want to make sure that we focus upon today. For we're all going to be children some way or another. We're all going to have responsibilities to others. And we can be a great blessing and enjoyment uh, to them. But the metaphor continues now as he says that these children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. That's the children of one's youth. 
How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They, the children, shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. Notice how the the image continues. That not only are they a reward, a pay, if you will, a blessing and an entrustment, but they're like arrows. Elsewhere, this word arrow is used to describe a weapon, and that's common, but it's also used to describe words. Words can be like arrows in figurative language, and they can hit their target where precisely aimed. In fact, I think that the, the nuance of this particular use of arrows is most likely the words that the children will say in defense of the family, in making sure that the family is guarded and protected. Notice uh, that you see at the end of verse 5, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates, preserving the well-being of the family, defending and caring for all members of the family. We see that we all have responsibility to and for each other. And so this psalm becomes far more than, boy, it's neat to have kids. It, it shows you uh, our purpose as children and as parents, the wonderful blessing uh, that children, in fact, are to us. And the, the result of this, like we saw in one, Psalm 112, is that uh, the person who recognizes this can just step back and say, I'm blessed. I am blessed to have children who are loving the Lord. I am blessed to have children that are the product of a house in which the Lord built. And they bring me great blessing personally. They bring you great blessing personally as you think about your own parenting. And the fact that we're all children to, uh, most, most of us are still children to others, we can in fact be that blessing to others. This idea, this is the word Asher, from which one of the 12 tribes of Israel was named, for the mother felt blessed or happy when she had the child, and she named him Asher. This is that sense of, of enjoying a right standing, of, of looking at the world and saying, this is right. This is the way it was meant to be led. And that beautiful sense of, of Asher or enjoyment can come. I can stand and give testimony this weekend that, that I've had a Psalm 127 week occur to me over the last seven or eight days. I didn't think about that I was going to say what I'm about to say uh, now when I was preparing earlier in the week, but then the week just sort of unfolded. I don't know what your life is like with the Lord, but, but my life is pretty steady with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, a deluge of blessings in which I'm just drenched and then return to a steady walk with the Lord. Maybe he needs to drench me or douse me with blessings because I'm too hard-headed to see the wonder of his blessings every day. But I don't know if you're like me or if your walk is a little different, but this week I stand before you sopping wet with the blessings of Psalm 127 as I've seen some of these principles occur this week in my life and in the life of my family. And so by way of application, let me just let you vicariously come into my life this week and see how your life might uh, pattern that in a different way. But let me just stand before you and give testimony of God's grace in my life this week. Uh, Last Saturday, uh, our oldest daughter, Abby, and her husband, Jared, returned from Ireland where they'd been for two months working with Crossworld Missions, leading a small team there. Their future is in Western Europe. They want to spend some time there this summer, and they went, took a few kids from our youth group and came back and What a great thrill to see them and see how they'd grown and matured in the Lord and what they'd been allowed to do. 
It was also my birthday, so we got the privilege of, of, of celebrating a bit that day and also the next. And as I get to be my age, I think about the faithfulness of God every year as birthdays come my way and how God has been so faithful to me over the years. Uh, we, we, uh, I came to Saturday night service and came here last Sunday morning, and then we celebrated my birthday. And our middle daughter, Hillary, had come back from Austin and Georgetown, where she had been all summer working and we're at that stage in our family's life where getting all five of us together and plus with my son-in-law, that's a big deal. And so we enjoyed all six together just uh, spending some time eating burgers and hanging out as a family that night. Uh, the next morning, uh, they got ready for a going-away party that we, we hosted for Abby and Jared and many of their friends. About 50 or 60 folks came over till 2 o'clock that Monday morning and got to say their goodbyes. And I saw the richness of their life as they prepare to move to Dallas where they're going to be enrolling in seminary. Um, the next morning brought packing, and they, uh, uh, it also brought extended family. Jared's mom and his dad, his two brothers and a girlfriend, and his grandfather and grandmother showed up, and we had a big packing party, and the U-Haul and the caravan was all lined up to go. We had a big dinner that night and enjoyed once again, now the blessing of our extended family and how God has provided through each and every one of them. Then it really began to hit me on Wednesday. About 9.15 that morning, the final uh, oven or a little whatever they were throwing into the back of the truck got put in and they took off. I had to work and so I stayed behind and I watched this caravan take off from my street. Jared at the front in the U-Haul and four cars behind, all of them going up to enroll at DTS. And I was reminded that on August the 2nd, 1985, Val and I left Houston in a U-Haul and a caravan, and we went to Dallas Seminary. And now on August the 4th, 2009, 24 years later, my oldest daughter and her husband doing the same thing. I got it then. It really hit me hard at that moment as, as the parallel was overwhelming. I was home alone Wednesday night. Olivia and Val went up to help them move in. And I came back after a long day, and I had some things to do, and I was helping our youngest daughter, Olivia, get ready to enroll in college. I don't know if you moms or dads have, have helped your kids do a college application, but it, it was longer than my dissertation in graduate school, I can tell you that. It's a huge endeavor. And so she was doing all the, the tedious work, and I told her we'd do all that work, and we printed out. And the essence of these college apps now are three essays that you have to write. She's wanting to graduate early from high school here in, in December and go to A&M in the spring. And so she's attempting to be admitted quickly. And these essays were just overwhelming. And I saw this application and I began to edit some of the stuff that she had written and how well she had communicated. And I, I began to read her essays. And I, first of all, I was very grateful that she could construct sentences and, and use proper grammar. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. I appreciate that for the high schools. But, but moreover, her heart came out. And I saw how she had been touched by a tragedy that had happened in one of her friend's life and uh, how, what she had learned from her best friend who, because of a, gra- a brain injury, cannot speak and lives in a wheelchair. And at the end of Livia's essay, she said she has taught me more, more than words can convey. She taught me about the heartbreak and lessons uh, that she learned as she wrote from a, an injury that had stopped her swimming career. And it was just a thrill to see her heart and to see how God had worked and all of our kids' life as they were now going their separate ways, but it was a, a wonderful privilege to see. The next day was our anniversary, and Val was driving back from, uh, from Dallas, and I was thinking about the wife of my youth. It was our 26th wedding anniversary, and 
And she called and she said she'd been thinking the same thing. And she told us that our middle daughter, Hillary, had, had called her. And Hillary had gone back to Austin and been working some more. And she said how much, much she missed the house and how homesick she was. And then it hit me again. She said, she told Val, I miss Grace. I miss our church. Now, moms and dads, it's a good thing when your 20-year-old calls up and says, I miss church. And so she'll be back with us. And uh, the privilege of watching the Lord build that house and through each one of these kids uh, just began to uh, become so overwhelming. And we got ready for, uh, to celebrate our anniversary. It was going to be a low-key deal, just sitting on the back porch. And then the phone rang. And Val heard that her father was going to be taken to surgery. And we realized she had to go. She had to go up to Detroit. And then it hit me the next day as we prepared uh, for her plane tickets and for uh, the rent car. Somebody called from out of town and said, I have a free plane ticket for you. You can use that. We looked on our mileage and we saw that we had enough points on our visa card for a free rent car. God providing in and out. And then the overwhelmingness of it all hit us that Val now was coming and going to be a blessing to her dad. As a member of that family, that child and my wife is over 21. She's a full-grown woman, and now she's going to be uh, uh, to guard her dad and defend him in his hour of need. And it just, it just doused me. It just kind of overwhelmed me. And I was impressed with three things that I'll leave you with. The importance, first of all, of honoring mother and father. Uh, there are very few of us in here that don't still have relations with our moms and dads or still don't have moms and dads. Honoring mom and dad is not just for the youth. It's not just for kids. It's for 57-year-olds and 33-year-olds. To consider them heavy, to consider them important is literally what the word means. It's the same word translated glory throughout the Old Testament. Give them glory. Give them importance. Ascribe to them honor. Meet them in their hour of need. I was reminded that we are to be a blessing to all. The importance of that comes from Genesis chapter 12. God told Abram to do two things. You'd think he told him to do a million things. He said, do things. Go forth and be a blessing. What a wonderful way to go through everyday life. Go forth and be a blessing to someone. Enrich their life. And lastly, those of us that have had the privilege of of raising a family, uh, I have learned to appreciate my children more so this week than any week of my life. They have been a blessing to me and my wife in ways I cannot describe. I wanted to just give a brief testimony of that this morning. But appreciate your children. They are an inheritance from the Lord for your entrustment to guide them, but they're also a blessing and a guard for you. And enjoy that and allow them to participate in that role as well, to be a blessing for you and an entrustment to you as well. And as we see, as this little psalm unfolds, that unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor over it will do so in vain. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thanks again for the privilege to think about these things, to be reminded of the beauty of the Word of God, the simplicity of these little wisdom psalms that remind us of very basic principles. But now we're tasked, Lord, with the duty to incorporate these things into our lives, to live these principles. Help us shore up our homes, Lord, if we've allowed uh, some timbers to sag. If there are some rooms that we've not invited you into our lives or into our homes, forgive us, Lord. We ask you now to come in and build up our homes. Anyone here, Lord, that perhaps does not know you, remind them, Lord, that by the simple act of faith and the fact that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead, they can leave here this very morning 
enjoying an eternal relationship with you. For those of us that enjoy that relationship, Lord, allow us to enjoy senses of blessing. If we need it, Lord, just douse us, cover us, drench us with blessing that we might uh, not be able to miss the wonder of your provision and grace. Thank you for each one here, Lord. I ask that we might have opportunity this week to ponder upon these principles. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.